0: God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 33 through 46. Hear the word of the Lord. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now this was also the inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We'll turn now to Daniel chapter 7, reading 9 through 14. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but an extension was light, of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him dominion, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 31, verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll be back together with you.
1: I think it's been over a year. I know it's been over a year since I've had the joy of worshiping together with you. Um, we haven't been far away, just in the other room. I'm sure you've heard us as we've been interrupting your meetings. So um, I want to thank you so much for your, uh, your patience with us, uh, as well as for your prayers, and for the joy that it's been over the last year to be, uh, over many years, um, and especially over the last year to be working together in this ministry, reaching out to Spanish-speaking people in our community. Um, it's been a joy working together in things like Grace Bridge and uh, having something like 80% of them being Spanish-speaking, so thank you for <laughs> for all of your work uh, in that. And uh, just in so many ways. We are seeing the, the hand of the Lord uh, saving people for his glory, maturing believers for his glory, bringing really godly, uh, helpers for the work. It is uh, just one blessing after another. We know that comes from the sovereign hand of our God and it comes through the prayers of his people. And so please continue to pray for us. Um, Let's come to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Oh Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We pray that we would tremble before it, that we would not be stiff-necked, that we would not cover our ears like we see the nation of Israel doing in our passage today but that the eyes of our heart would be open to behold more clearly the glory of Christ, and that as we see him, we would be emboldened to be faithful unto death, and like Stephen, to receive the crown of life. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here today who has not called upon the name of Jesus, and in him found salvation, and in him found deliverance from the fear of death and eternal life, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. And for all of us today, I pray, Lord, that you would cast away our fears, fix our eyes upon Christ, help us to persevere where we have been scattered and planted, to bear much fruit for the glory of our risen King. In his name we pray, amen. Today, as we look at the death of Stephen, the first uh, Christian martyr in the book of Acts... My question for each of us is, are we prepared to die for Christ? Are we ready to die for Christ? Because it is only if we are ready to die for Christ that we will be able to truly live for Christ. It is only having considered ourselves dead that we can really say, like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Over this last year, we've been confronted with death, with the fear of death, and we've seen what it's done to the world. And our question is, are we afraid of death? Or do we consider that Christ is alive? He's ruling and reigning, and so death has no power over us, and we will be faithful even unto death. There is no disease that can take away the life that we have in Christ. There is no fear of government or political correctness that can take away the hope that we have in Christ. Do we really believe that with every fiber of our being to the point that if it comes to it, we are willing to die for our savior because he was willing to die for us and not only to die, but to be raised up, to rule as the king right now in charge of every problem, big or small, that we face. And so we are willing, we are eager to lay down our lives. Because he's ruling, he's reigning, he's seated on his throne. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus gives these words of encouragement to the church in Smyrna. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful until death. And what is his promise? That we will receive the crown of life. Today, we will be studying the death of Stephen. Stephen or Stephanus means crown. And Stephen was faithful until death, and he has received the crown of life. And that's our desire that by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we might be faithful until death and if we are willing to die for christ that that means in every smaller sacrifice that he might ask of us in every smaller rejection we might suffer from the world it is nothing for us because we know that we are only being prepared for a crown a stephanus of life in our passage today acts chapter 7 verses 54 through chapter 8 verse 4 we're going to divide it into three parts So first of all, in chapter 7, verses 54 through 56, we will see how we can be prepared for this crown of life, first of all, by looking to Jesus. Stephen, as he sees Jesus in glory, receives the anchor of faith by which he is able to persevere all the way until the end. So first, verses 54 through 56, looking to Jesus. Second, in verses 57 through 60, we will see it is through dying like Jesus. We will see how Stephen repeats the same words as Jesus in his death because it is the spirit of Jesus who gives him perseverance to die like him. And finally, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we will see that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We will see that we are called to proclaim Jesus. Persecution leads to proclamation. So our three sections, again, are looking to Jesus, dying like Jesus, and proclaiming Jesus. Before we enter into our text, let's look a little bit at the context. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we read what is, in some ways, the the key verse, the outline of the book of Acts. Jesus, as he is preparing to ascend to his throne in heaven following his death and resurrection, we read these words, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. In the book of Acts, we see the disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing the witness of the resurrected Christ, first of all, in chapters 1 through 7, to Jews in Jerusalem. Then, at the transition point of our passage today, beginning in chapter 8 through chapter 12, we see that witness expanding, being scattered from Jerusalem to those hated Samaritans. And finally, in chapters 13 through the end, we will see the ministry of the Spirit through Paul bringing the gospel to Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. So keep in mind that we are at a critical point in the book of Acts as we transition from chapter 7 to chapter 8. And we will see how the Spirit uses the death of Stephen rather than stifling the gospel to expanding the proclamation of the gospel. And how God uses tribulation, trouble, and our lives as opportunities to proclaim Christ. As we track through then... In chapters 1 through 7, we see in chapter 2 how the Holy Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost and empowers the church for witness. And no sooner does this witness come than Satan brings his opposition through persecution in chapters 3, 4, and 5. But rather than stifling the gospel, again, this persecution only leads to more and more people becoming believers in Christ. The word is being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, and then comes trouble. As it always does. And in Acts chapter 6, we see that trouble in ethnic division within the church. Does that sound at all familiar? We see how there were the Greek-speaking widows and there were the the Hellenistic and uh, the the Hebrew widows. And the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking widows were feeling overlooked in the daily distribution of money and bread at the tables. And rather than allowing differences in race, ethnicity, feeling of prejudice to divide the church, they knew that the church could not stand that way. They had to be united as they are united in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit anointed seven men to be, as it were, the first deacons, to serve tables, to serve the physical needs of those in the body, so that they would not be divided and so that the apostles could continue on preaching the word and in prayer. And Stephen is one of those seven, filled with the Holy Spirit, a man gifted, a man gifted to serve, and as we'll see, a man gifted to proclaim God's word. And in chapter 6 and verse 7, we read the word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this is radical. This is causing trouble the very priests who were there to offer the sacrifices for the people, to guard the temple, were themselves becoming believers in Christ, were themselves questioning, so why are we offering these sacrifices if Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, has been made, if he is the fulfillment of the law and the temple? And Stephen himself was teaching these things to the point that as the Jews were hearing this, particularly the synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen, They tried to oppose Stephen, tried to argue against him in chapter 6, but he was filled with the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of all wisdom and understanding, and so he could not be refuted. And since they could not argue with his wisdom, they instead went to physical attack. So they took Stephen and they dragged him before the Sanhedrin and they said, he teaches that Jesus has said that he's going to destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Now wait a second, I think I've heard this before. Stephen is following in the steps of Jesus. He's being brought before the Sanhedrin, who months before Jesus had been brought before, on the very same accounts, that he was a blasphemer, that he was speaking against the law, that he was speaking against the temple. They were bringing up these lies against him. And in chapter 7, we have Stephen's words that we would expect would be words of his defense. But instead, Stephen turns the tables and brings accusation against them. And he does that through the Word of God. He does that by retelling to them their own history. Retelling to them how it is the God of glory who appeared to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. And he gave him a marvelous covenant. But how when God raised up Joseph to save the people, the brothers rejected Joseph. And again, when God raised up Moses to be a Savior and a Deliverer for them, they rejected him. And as God used him to bring the law, they broke that law. And as God gave them his tabernacle and later gave him his temple, they worshipped idols instead. And so time after time, walking through the history of Israel, before the council, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, he's accusing them of their sin. He is not like so many preachers today. Knowing that the people wanting to have their ears tickled won't talk about sin. No, he understands that to first realize our need for salvation, we have to see that the problem does not lie in our systems. It doesn't lie in our government. It lies in our hearts. It lies in our repeated pattern of sin against the Holy God. And the one way by which we can be saved is through repentance, turning from that sin and turning for his forgiveness. And so Stephen proclaims in verses 51 through 53, You men are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, and always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. (laughs) This is about the furthest thing from the kind of... uh, sweet, nice, you know, seven steps to a healthy marriage kind of sermon that you know, the world is used to hearing today, you're stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised of heart and ears. You're repeating the sins of your fathers who were always killing the prophets, except worse, because more than the prophet has come. The righteous one from Isaiah 53, the servant of God who committed no sin, there was no iniquity found in his mouth, and yet he was faithful unto death to die for our sins, and you were the ones who crucified him. And so now we come to our passage. How are they going to respond? Are they going to repent? Are they going to turn and say, you're right, we have followed in all of these ways. No, rather we're going to see in verse 54, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they began gnashing their teeth at them. Stephen has just said, Here's the problem. You may be circumcised externally. You may have an external mark of the covenant, but you are uncircumcised of heart. And they revealed that when the word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, came and penetrated their heart, and rather than find a circumcised heart, that that sword penetrated their heart, and what flowed out was venom, was anger, was self-righteousness, was, was a hatred for the word of God that was being brought against them. This is a challenge to us. How do we respond when a brother or sister comes to us with the word of God and says, Brother, sister, you're in sin? Here's what God says Is our first reaction to defend ourselves? Is our first reaction to attack them and all the problems in their life? Or is to humbly? tremble before God's word, to be quick to repent and keep short accounts with God. Their hearts were cut open and they quickly gnashed their teeth like wild, ferocious animals that wanted to devour the one who was opposing them. Jesus had prophesied that this was going to happen. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 28, he spoke to the leaders of Israel He said to them, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. They will come from east and west and north and south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Jesus had told the leaders, you you boast in your positions of power and you think that as those who are the descendants of Abraham that you will be in the kingdom of God. But here's what you're going to see. You're going to see people from east and west and north and south. You're going to see people from the ends of the earth coming into the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are going to be thrown out. You're going to be peering in through the window at this banquet feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Gentiles, and Samaritans, and you'll be on the outside, gnashing your teeth. And here they are. Rather than humbly repenting and finding the way through the door, who is Christ, they're on the outside in anger, gnashing their teeth. But what does Stephen see? In the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of of all of this venom and hatred, we find the peace and calm and joy of a man of God who beholds the glory of Christ. In verses 55 and 56. Verse 55 we read, But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. Now before we pass too quickly over this verse, We need to see that this is critical for understanding the rest of Stephen's actions and words. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. The power behind what Stephen was saying and doing was not Stephen himself. It is the Spirit of Jesus inside of Stephen. This is critical to understand the book of Luke and Acts. In Acts chapter 1... The author, Luke, the human author, Luke, says, I wrote to you earlier, Theophilus, of what Jesus began to do and to teach. So as we read the Gospel of Luke, he is saying Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, that's what Jesus began to do and to teach. And now in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, we find what Jesus continues to do and to teach through his Holy Spirit in the church. We live in the days where Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. He is alive, and he's working, and he's working through the Holy Spirit inside of us. So it should be no surprise to us then as we read on in Stephen's words, as he commits his spirit unto the hands of the Lord, and it sounds like the last words of Jesus on the cross, as he prays for the forgiveness of his enemies, like Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies we should not say, wow, isn't that an interesting parallel? Of course he was going to pray the same things, say the same things, act the same way, because it is the spirit of Jesus inside of him, repeating, mirroring his life. And that should give us hope. That the hero of this story isn't Stephen and how great a man he was. The hero of this story is Jesus. And he's alive. And if we're believers in Jesus, we have the same spirit of Jesus inside of us. And with all of our sins and all of our faults, we have a much more powerful spirit who can give us the power to be faithful witnesses, who can give us the power to be faithful unto death and receive the crown of life because the power is in our power. The power is the, the Holy Spirit of Jesus who conforms us more and more to be like Jesus. We should take hope by this story. That we can be like Stephen because we have the Spirit of Jesus. So being full of the Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. And what did he see? The glory of God. This invisible God, by His mercy, rolled back the scroll, as it were, of heaven and allowed Stephen to see his glory. This is his vindication. Remember that he was being accused of being a blasphemer, of speaking against the God of glory. But he began his defense in chapter 7 and verse 2 by saying that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. He's a God who is not constrained by a building, by a temple. He's the God of heaven and earth. And this God, who is transcendent in His glory, is imminent. He draws near to us in our time of need and weakness. And there, Stephen is vindicated as the glory of God is shining upon his face. And in addition to seeing the glory of God, who does he see at the right hand of the Father? And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now when we compare verses 55 and 56, there are a lot of parallels, but there's one major difference. Do you see it? In 55 it says that he saw Jesus. In verse 56, as Stephen recounts what he's seeing, as he interprets what he's seeing, he sees at the right hand of God God. The Son of Man, the Son of Adam. What is he saying? As we're going to see, he saw the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, the Son of Man at the right hand of God. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. To understand what this must have meant for Stephen in this moment, we have to see again that he is following in the steps of Jesus and he is seeing the fulfillment of Jesus' words as he beholds him on his throne or standing before the throne of God in heaven. In Matthew chapter 26, we see a passage very similar to ours. Jesus is standing before this same Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders of Israel, and he is being called to give a defense for being a blasphemer and they are looking for a reason to kill him. And in Matthew 26, verse 59, we read, Now the chief priest, the whole council, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. They didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I'm about to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Same accusations against Stephen. And the high priest stood up and said, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, here's the key verse, You said it yourself, nevertheless I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus had said to this same Sanhedrin, this same group, months later, that Stephen would be standing before, this will be my vindication. This is how you will know who I am. When you see the clouds opened up, and you see the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 coming and taking his throne, you will see all the beastly nations being put under his feet, and one like a son of Adam having dominion, an everlasting dominion which will not be destroyed. Now, we might say to ourselves, well, I mean, if I could have a vision like that, if I could see with my eyes Jesus in glory, well, then I'd have no fear of death. But you understand that to this point, and there was no turning back for Stephen, what he had was the word of God. What he had was the promise of Jesus. According to Daniel 7, according to Matthew 26, that one day they would see Him, the Son of Man, exalted with a kingdom which will never be destroyed. He was living by faith in the Word of God. And His faith was turned to sight in that moment. In that moment, the resurrection of Jesus, which had been proclaimed to Him, He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that His faith had been confirmed by the sight of Jesus enthroned in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, That anchor of his faith should be the anchor of our faith as well. That Jesus is the king. That Jesus did not remain in the tomb. That Jesus is the Son of Man who has been ascended on high and he is on his throne. He's ruling and reigning over all the kings and over all the the false teachers that are out there and, and over all of the political incorrectness. Jesus is the king. He's the king over every pandemic, over every germ, over every job loss, over difficult every difficult marriage, whatever it might be. Jesus is the king. He's in charge. He's ruling. And because he is there, because he is the king eternal, we can give up our lives. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to lose and only everything to gain by being faithful until death and receiving the crown of life because Jesus has been crowned. He is enthroned on high. That's our hope. And that was the hope for Stephen, the fulfillment of God's word. And so this is what we need. In every trial, in every temptation to throw in the towel, fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Run the race with endurance because our eyes are fixed on the goal. And that is to be like Jesus to see him, to know him, to be with him, and to know that one day we will see him face to face. Fix our eyes on Jesus. What was the reaction of the Sanhedrin when Jesus first said these words? Verse 65. The high priest tore his robe, saying, He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He's deserving of death. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 7, and there we begin our second section, verses 57 through 60. We've looked to Jesus, and now we see Stephen dying like Jesus. He's dying like Jesus, first of all, in verses 57 through 58, because like Jesus, he is accused of being a blasphemer. Let's read together. Acts seven fifty seven. it says, They cried out with a loud voice, they covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. Stephen had said that they were uncircumcised of heart, and the word came and cut their heart. He said, you are uncircumcised of ears. Your ears are stopped up. And they showed it literally. They covered their ears. They didn't want to hear any more of what he had to say. And they ran at him with one force, That they might, in verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They drove him out of the city and they began stoning him because they believed him to be a blasphemer. In Leviticus 24, 14 through 16, it says this is what you are to do to blasphemers. That you might not not share in the cursed words that they are speaking. You throw stones at them as you cast them, push them out of the city. You're rejecting their message, rejecting their word. And just as they had crucified Jesus, under the false accusation that he was a blasphemer, they did the same thing to Stephen. They pushed him out, called him a blasphemer, and they stoned him. Again, in the midst of these lies and this chaos and these attacks, what do we see in Stephen? How would, how would I respond? How would you respond? If someone was lying about you, someone was attacking you, someone was hating you for, for no reason other than you are standing for Christ, how would we respond? If we were responding in our flesh, we know the answer it would be self defense. And it would be further attack against them. But look at the response of Stephen in verse 59, following in the steps of Jesus. They went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What would you do? You have just a few breaths left. First, as he's looking to Jesus, seeing him in his glory, it says, He called upon him. He did not raise up his arms in his own strength. But he called upon the strength of Jesus to receive his spirit. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 21, there is a glorious promise. That promise is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do we hear that? Everyone. Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Don't wait until your last breath. That's when I'm going to call upon Him. Do you know for certain now that the name on which you are depending, the name on which your salvation for all eternity rests, is the name of the Lord? And who is this Lord? He says, Lord Jesus Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord, the Master. He is the great I am, and He is the only one in whom we can trust for eternal life. He calls upon Him and He says, Lord Jesus, receive my Spirit. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> as we were reading through Luke chapter 23, we've heard Jesus' own last words as He hung on the cross. Jesus said, crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now all the words of Jesus are the word of God. There is no, in one sense, there is no word of Jesus that is more important than another word of Jesus. It is is all perfect, eternal, infinite truth. And, And at the same time, think about this. As it were, as a lifetime of faithfulness to God, He wants these words to echo throughout history as his last words by which he is, in some sense, remembered. Looking to the Father and saying, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What he is giving is not only a pattern for us in our death, but a pattern in our life that moment by moment, second by second, day by day, year by year, we might be continually rendering all to God. We might be committing all that we have and all that we are into His sovereign hands. We might entrust every ounce of our being, even our very spirit, into the hands of our God. And it is all the more amazing to consider that with Jesus' last words, He did not give us a new saying, but he quoted David in Psalm 31 and verse 5, the psalm that we read together, as David himself was surrounded by enemies, and yet he calls upon God in Psalm 31 and says, "'In you I've taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. You will pull me out of the net which they've secretly laid for me. You are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit.' You ransomed me, O Yahweh, God of truth. This should give us great encouragement. How can we stand, even faithful unto death, like Jesus? Let our minds be saturated with the Word of God. Let our backbone be fortified by the promises of Scripture. Let us pray, not looking for some original and new revelation, but knowing that we have everything that we need for life and godliness in His Word and particularly what we need in our times of trials and difficulty, we need the Psalms. We need to be thinking about them, meditating upon them, memorizing them, singing them, proclaiming them, because there we find, in all of the agony, in all of the suffering of this world, we find the fortification of faithful saints filled by the Spirit, nevertheless praising God and trusting themselves to God. And Jesus Himself, with His last breath, was meditating upon the Psalms and finding himself faithful unto death, obedient unto death. Oh, let's be saturated with the Word of God so that it, it pours out of us and it pours out of our hearts and our minds, our mouths, in praise to Him. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Stephen said. Second, we find verse 60. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a, with a loud voice. Now, of course, he was under the weight of stones, so physically falling to his knees would make sense, but I think there's so much more here. He, he's just had a vision of the king who is standing for him before the throne of God, and what more could he do but fall to his knees in a final act of obedience and of dependence before the king of the universe? In reverence before the king, he falls and with a loud voice he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Literally, the word there is that that the Lord would not stand against them. There is an interesting, uh, what might seem like a discrepancy in our passage. Because in Matthew 26 and Daniel 7, it says that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. But here instead we find Him standing. We say, well, why Why is He standing? And some say it's because He's standing to receive Stephen. I think more likely, according to James 5, 9, the, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is ready to stand against Israel for their repeated rebellion. Jesus is standing up to judge. And what He says here literally in verse 60 is, Lord, don't stand against them don't don't hold their sin against them sit back down and give them another opportunity to repent this is amazing that in the midst of dying at the hands of these people who are the true blasphemers he is praying for their forgiveness and on the other hand it shouldn't seem so radical to us this is the heart of the gospel this is the heart of christ What did Jesus pray as he was on the cross? In Luke 23, 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The heart of the gospel is a heart of forgiveness. Jesus is the the perfect one who has come to die for fallen sinners, to bring the forgiveness that we could not Obtained by our own works, by our own sacrifices, it is only through Jesus taking the holy wrath of the Father for us on the cross and petitioning the Father that He would accept the sacrifice that He made on the cross instead of the death that we deserved. He was praying for His enemies as He had instructed us to do in Matthew 5.44. I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The heart of the Gospel is a heart of forgiveness who loves our enemies, who prays for our enemies because we realize that we have sinned against God, that we are His enemies, that we deserve the cross, that we deserve the stoning, but that Jesus has taken our place. And so Stephen was willing to pray for those who were against him because he knew that he had been against God. And Jesus had prayed for him. And Jesus had purchased his forgiveness. And so we too must ask ourselves, is there someone against whom we are holding a grudge? We are embittered. We're angry. Maybe it's been days. Maybe it's been years since we've talked to that person. Oh, they're never going to change. And they've done all these things to me. The heart of the gospel is a heart of forgiveness. Let's be like Stephen. Because he had the spirit of Jesus. He prayed for their forgiveness. If we have been holding bitterness against someone, today is the day to repent of that. To call them up, to visit them and say, I want to be reconciled. Let's get things right. He prayed for their forgiveness with his last breath. And having said this, he fell asleep. What glorious words. He fell asleep. It doesn't say he died. He fell asleep. Why does it say he slept? Because this is one of the most glorious pictures in the New Testament. It is the picture of what death means for a believer in Jesus. It's not final. I don't know about you, but we don't, I, don't, I don't go to bed at night expecting they am going to stay there for the rest of eternity. <laughs> You, I mean, sometimes it feels like that would be nice, but uh, you, we, we go to sleep believing that we're going to be raised back up the next morning. And that's what it is for a believer. First Thessalonians 413 and 14 says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is our hope. As Jesus did not remain in the tomb, but he was raised up. That for every person who has believed in Christ as their Savior, when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our spirit goes to be with Jesus in heaven, but that's not the end of the story. Our bodies have been buried as a seed, awaiting the day when Jesus returns. And those who right now are asleep will be awakened to life eternal. The spirits of those who have fallen asleep will come with Jesus, will receive new resurrection bodies and rule and reign with him forever. For the believer, to die is not death, but it is but to sleep. And we will arise. And because of that, what do we have to lose? To live is Christ. To die is gain. We can't fear death. That is to say that Jesus' resurrection is of no power. We have seen in verses 54 through 56, look to Jesus. That is the anchor. That is the sure hope. He is alive. He is on his throne. And in verses 57 through 60, we see his spirit gives us the power the power to, to live well, to forgive well, and to die well, knowing that death is only sleep. We will be raised. And finally, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see looking to Jesus, dying like Jesus. It is so that we might proclaim Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. One of the church, early church fathers, Tertullian, has made the famous statement that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we're going to see in two ways in these four verses how that statement is absolutely true. How the attacks of Satan leading to the death of Stephen... And leading to the persecution of the church, rather than leading to the stifling of the church, persecution led to proclamation. Suffering led to the message of salvation being proclaimed in Judea and Samaria. First of all, we see that in God's preparation for Saul. Verse 1 again, Saul, well, let me actually take a step back to verse 58. As they were stoning him, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Again in verse 1 of chapter 8, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And finally in verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. Now that's all that we hear about Saul in chapter 8 until we come to famous Acts 9. And this Saul, ravaging the church, persecuting the church like a wild beast, seeking to devour them, throwing men and women into jail and having them put to death in hearty agreement with the death of Stephen, would become the great missionary apostle to the Gentiles. This is incredible. One of the most hardened men against the gospel would become one of the greatest proclaimers of Christ. And we might say, why? How How could that change be explained. Well, of course, in one sense, in the ultimate sense, God is sovereign. God chose Paul before the foundation of the world so that upon him, the the, the least and worst of sinners, he might lavish his grace. It is God's sovereignty. But I think this passage is framed in just this way so that we see the death of Stephen and his prayer for his enemies turning quickly into the salvation of Saul. Think about that. Stephen was praying, don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them. And God hears his prayer, and God saves Saul. Humanly speaking then, it is the prayer of Stephen that results in the ministry to the Gentiles in Acts 13 through 28. In some sense, we are here, saved, having heard the gospel, because Stephen was praying for Saul to be saved. Now, are there people in our lives that we've given up praying for? We think they're just too hard-hearted. They'll never change. They never will change on their own. But God's powerful. How much time do we spend complaining about... Our elected officials. How much time do we spend praying for our elected officials? How much time do we spend complaining about that person who is making our lives difficult because they oppose the scriptures and they they oppose God? And how much time do we spend on our knees begging that God would save them and believing that He can, believing that He will, This is a marvelous testimony of how God turns his enemies into his servants. The second thing we see in this passage of how persecution leads to proclamation is the response of the church as a result of this persecution. Halfway through verse 1 again we read, On that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, as it were, the home base at this time for the church. But the other believers, as a result of the persecution, were scattered. Scattered to Judea and Samaria, to the resulting areas. They, they lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They, they lost their schools. They lost their circle of friends. And now they were being scattered into a new region particularly those in Samaria, they were in a region that they had previously hated, that they had looked down upon. As we read about the the Samaritans throughout the New Testament, this is a people who were detestable to the Jews. Remember, they were the ones who in the uh, Assyrian exile had remained and had intermarried with the Assyrians and with that brought together their gods with the worship of Yahweh and they were a mess. They didn't believe all of the scriptures. They only held to the first five books of the Bible. And, and as a result of all of this, the Jews looked down upon them as idolaters, as, as this mixed race. And the Jews wouldn't even pass through Samaria lest they defile their feet, so they walked around it. And yet here now, they were leaving the comfort of Jerusalem and being scattered into a region of mixed breeds, Hated Samaritans. And what did they do? Verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. The word they're preaching is the word eugalizo. It's It's the word for proclaiming the good news of the Word of God. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of King Jesus, according to verse 12. This is incredible. This people who had every reason to say, God, right now life is just too hard. I'm just too busy. I'm just too underwater. There's too much change going on in my life. Too much trial. Too much difficulty. Wait just a minute until things settle down, and then, you know, I'll start telling my neighbors about Jesus again. No, they said, this is what I'm here for. The Lord is the one who has scattered me. He's taken me like a seed, and he has planted me in this new place. And notice, these weren't the apostles, because the apostles were back in Jerusalem. These were common people like you and me. And they used that opportunity in the trial in their life to proclaim Jesus. We need to understand that. The trials over the last year, they're no accident. They are sovereignly designed by God so that that the hardened soil might be tilled up and so that we might be cast into new places. And where we are with the people that we have influence around, we are there to proclaim the word. And if they oppose us, they're not opposing us, they're opposing God. And we don't fear their rejection because we know our king is on his throne. We don't fear even unto death because we know that for us death is only sleep. We proclaim him sacrificially, we proclaim him prayerfully, praying that God would forgive our enemies. That God would save our neighbors. That God would save those whom God has put within our circle. God is the Sovereign One who has taken us, who has planted us, and by His grace, He will bear much fruit. The trial of suffering is purposeful. It is purposeful so that the Gospel might show its power to save. What we have seen throughout this The story of Stephen, then, is not a story about Stephen. It's a story about the power of Jesus. To take a broken man, fill him with his spirit, and give him faithfulness even to the end, and to crown him with life. Where are we? Where has God planted us? Who is the person that today God wants us to to visit, to call on, to meet with, to invite over to our home, and to tell them about Jesus without fear of what they might say, how they might reject us. Consider Stephen, his faithfulness to death. And if you're here, and to you death is terrifying, call upon Jesus. Commit your life into his hands like Stephen did. And know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have nothing to fear. Because Jesus has died on the cross for your sin and he's been raised up and he's ruling and reigning. And if you believe him, you will be forgiven. If you believe him, you will be saved. If you believe him like Saul, you'll be transformed to tell people about him as well. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for your death for us, for your resurrection for us, for your ascension to the right hand, for your ruling and reigning. And we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit. And we see how your Holy Spirit in the life of Stephen gave him faith and faithfulness unto the end. We see how your Holy Spirit gave him boldness in the face of opposition. We see how your Holy Spirit gave him love and mercy, to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us as well and cause us to be like you in all of these ways. And, Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone here who has not called upon you, who has not entrusted their life to you, that today would be the day of salvation, to repent of stiff-neckedness and uncircumcision of heart, And say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I trust in you as the sacrifice for my sin and my Lord and Savior. And by your grace, O Lord, I pray that receiving this salvation, they would be emboldened, I would be emboldened, we all would be emboldened, like Stephen, to proclaim you in the midst of trial. In Christ's name we pray, amen.